0: or tell that person in high school how much you liked them. Each episode, I will talk to some amazing people from all walks of life and chat about their sliding doors moments. We will reflect on how a decisional moment changed the course of their lives and how things
1: might have looked if they had never happened. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag, say hello to Quince.
0: Johnny is a television personality and has been inspiring the nation with his maths and science for 46 years. Born in Bristol, he proclaims to have had a disastrous education with no university experience or qualifications and classes his three years in the RAF as his degree course. He began his career as a Butlins Redcoat and was a successful comedian for 17 years. He changed tack writing for children's TV with comedy sketch shows and factual information and he wrote and presented 20 TV series including Think of a Number and Think Again and was probably best known for play school throughout the 70s. Johnny wrote comedy for BBC light entertainment shows Crackerjack and has worked with some of the biggest stars including The Beatles, Dusty Springfield and The Rolling Stones. He has written over nine books, and his one-man stage show Wonders Beyond Numbers, based on his book, has been touring since before COVID. His autobiography, Johnny Ball, My Previous Life in Comedy, will soon be published, covering the years up to the start of his TV successes, and he can sometimes be seen alongside his daughter Zoe on Celebrity Gogglebox. Johnny is completely self-motivated now at 85, and is lecturing widely on math, science and comedy, and I am so excited to delve into the life and moments that have made it so far. So, welcome to Sliding Doors, Johnny.
4: Well, thank you very much. <laughs> nice intro.
0: <laughs> well, you've done it all. It's amazing. It's an absolute pleasure to have you today. you are I feel like we class you as such a national treasure, so it's lovely to have you here. Um, how is life going for you at the moment?
4: It, very good. It's, it's okay. Um, but I, I'm, because I'm 85 now, the phone isn't ringing anywhere near as often as it did. People actually think you're falling off the perch or you won't be able to to even be not be compass at all so so i the phone doesn't go as often as it does so i've got to generate things but i'm writing most days at uh, my desk and uh, and i'm enjoying that
0: yeah and you're still going and doing all these shows and stuff and do you do you kind of love being able to be like quite in control of what you do now because i guess like as, as i said you're most self-motivated you're still doing your shows you're still educating you're writing books is that just quite nice to be able to do what you want to do
4: it's always been that i've always liked to be in control i've always i've always liked that and uh, when i did early series where there were directors and, and producers telling me what to do um I, I didn't settle to it very much it was only when i had my own shows that i really settled um with with a team that, that made it possible and were supportive of me so uh yeah
0: Brilliant. It's a good outlook to have. And you've had such a wonderful career. And would you have imagined life to have been like this if you'd have been your younger self, like, looking at you now? Would you have ever imagined this is what your life would have been?
4: There was no chance. I mean, first of all, when I was a kid, there was no television for a start. Uh, you know, yeah. um, we didn't get television until 53, I think, 1953, something like that. Um, so there's no television. And people on 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 the BBC all spoke like this. This is the BBC. <laughs> yeah. So there's no possible way I I would be on national radio or television. I, I, I couldn't conceive it. I love maths. And my dad my dad loved the world and loved everything about science. And he inspired me. And so I was learning all the time, almost without knowing I was learning. Um, yeah. And I always loved maths. Because my dad, from a very early age, had me playing dominoes. But double nine dominoes rather than double six dominoes because double nine dominoes are brilliant and and uh, there's twice as many dominoes about one. And he always said double six dominoes are wimps. (laughs) And because you've got all the numbers from from one to nine plus blank the zero, um, it really is very helpful. And I remember Mm -hmm. asking for homework at at our old class when I was seven. We want homework, and our teacher saying you don't get homework (laughs) until. You're nine. And we said, we want homework. So he gave us homework at seven and gave us wow. sheets with the hundred sums and say, if you do 10, I'll be happy. And myself and a few others, two or three others did the hundred every night when we got them. And um, and and so so we were learning very rapidly, and and I had this desire for that.
0: It's brilliant, and I've always loved maths too because I think if you're someone that has a logical brain, why maths is so brilliant is because there's always an answer.
4: People misconstrue maths mm. because of the way it's taught. So much of a primary time is spent on numeracy. The Greeks mm. didn't do numeracy at all. The Greeks didn't bother to give their numbers names. One they called yeah. A, two they called B, three they called Z, alpha, beta, gamma, delta. But they did geometry. And when you do math with geometry, it's pictorial. It hits you in the eye. Mm-hmm. It's so more powerful. So that's what I teach. And it, even today I, I, I go out and teach people that math can be really funny if you look at it from a geometrical eye. Uh, it's much more fun. Yeah. It empowers you much more. And, uh, and, and so it's very worthwhile. Um, and still, we still get the same curriculum and worries about numeracy and numeracy project to help people with numeracy. And um, how often do you use numeracy? Be honest. How often do you calculate anything?
0: Exactly. Well, no, it's brilliant to think of it and looking at things from a different perspective. And that's what you do. And it's brilliant because people can learn from different ways. And so taking it back then, what were your aspirations as a child? Like, were you always interested in comedy? Like, how were, what was Johnny like as a little boy?
4: Yeah, from about 11, I definitely thought I'd love to be a comedian when I grow up, because I couldn't think of any job more enjoyable or more lo- wonderful than making people yeah. laugh. And my dad did that, and he had lots of comedy records, and, uh, and I listened to those. And we used to go to Blackpool um, uh, then um, on holiday, and I learned a lot. And, uh, um um and but it was comedy, it was very, very much comedy. I saw George Womby live and, and other artists like that. Um and mm-hmm. they they were not just making people laugh, they were clearly enjoying it themselves so much. Yeah. So that was an idea that I, I might be a comedian one day.
0: Yeah, and you're right, it isn't just about making you when you are good at something and you enjoy doing it, that's also kind of what drives other people to laugh and like it, it makes the whole thing such a better experience.
4: The next thing I wanted to do, when I was about three, I said I wanted to be a drummer because my mother gave me ah. knitting needles and I used to play to the radio with knitting needles. about yes. three or four. And I said I'd be a drummer. Well, I became a drummer when I was 16, uh, when I had money. I was working and because uh, I left school at 16. A failure, just two O-levels. But I got 100% in mass and the school looked round and thought, what have we missed here? And they had. They'd missed the fact that I was quite good at maths. And I got 100% um, and they just couldn't believe it. But then I was out. I wasn't good enough to go into sixth form. I was
1: out.
0: Wow. Oh, my gosh. And it's amazing. And actually, you made a really good point there because... I think sometimes people aren't nurtured well enough that they can realize what their talents are. And you obviously said that with your maths. And is that maybe one of the reasons why you want to make sure that kind of kids, especially, are learning about kind of all the different sides to maths and science at a young age so they can really realize what their potential
4: is? That's right. So you need, you need across the board learning. And there was another lucky thing in that my mum, they thought I was quite gifted. Brain, I thought mm-hmm. my, they, my brain was really quite bright, and somebody said, "Be careful, because kids can have brain tumours if they're too clever." So <gasps> they stopped buying me books.
0: Really? And the only
4: books I had to read were encyclopedias, because my dad had bought a range of encyclopedias, um, new, new news? news encyclopedias, and that's all I had to read. So I would thumb through those encyclopedias. Years later, about twenty years ago, we found some of these encyclopedias at a, a church jumble set, and yeah. I bought them. And when we brought them home, my wife turned to one page, and I said, "Right, hmm. turn over the next page, and it's going to be the Taj Mahal." And she turned it over, and there yes, you
0: remembered everything.
4: <laughs> I just knew. So, so you see, I had educated myself with it by absorbing mm-hmm. so much, you know.
0: I love that you can kind of remember how you taught yourself and it's again it's inspiration to people you don't you know I think these days hopefully school is a bit more creative and a bit more you know teaches kids in different ways and not just kind of the academic way and they can learn what they're good at and also you don't you can learn what you're good at at such different ages you don't have to know what you want to be when you're five years old um and I spoke in the introduction about kind of all the amazing people that you've worked with throughout your career. In terms of you yourself, who, who's kind of the best and most kind of exciting person that you've ever worked with?
4: I think it has to be Harry Seacombe. Harry Seacombe mm-hmm. was hysterically funny and a brilliant singer and, and a great, oh was a, just a, wonder, a natural wit and, and a joy to be with. I start when I was a comedian, I, sh- I was asked to do forces tours and I did the first one and it went very well because I've been in the forces and now I'm, I'm uh, uh, what, 26, 27. <clears throat> mm. And I went back to the forces and I just, I was at home again, you know, and yeah. so I worked at the forces. Um, the forces always tell blue jokes and dirty jokes, you know, I swear a lot, but, but I, mean, I didn't do that because we gave them shows from England as we traveled around Mm. the world. I went to Singapore a couple of times, first time with Harry Seacon. And that was wonderful. You know, we worked to 4,000 Navy twice in one day, 8,000 in one day in in a big open air arena. And and it was tremendous. And Harry became a great friend um, Mm. because I read humor tremendously and jokes would come out of my ears, you know, not just the ones I used but all kinds of jokes for all kinds of situations. So I wrote for him. He had a record come out. He record, I said, I said. he said, how can I sell my record? I said, tell him, it's plastic folk. You can play it in the bath. <laughs> 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 he even got a uh, hole in the middle, let the water out. <laughs> amazing. I, I, so he pay, paid me for those jokes, and I gave him the yeah. money back. I said, no, no, I'm learning more from you than you are from me. So, uh, so we brilliant. became great friends for a good few years, yeah.
0: And you briefly mentioned your lovely daughter, Zoe. How does it feel then to see her be such a successful broadcaster?
4: It's lovely. It's lovely. I remember when she was about 13 or 14, I said, what are you going to do, Zoe, for a career? She said, I might be quite fancy air hostess. I said, oh, a waitress on an aeroplane. Very good. And she went... (laughs) Oh, What have I said? <laughs> and she realised. So she started, and all the time she wanted to follow me. No question, she wanted to follow me in television, yeah. and she did. And it was lovely because when she started, uh, she, after six form college, which was rubbish, she, she studied boys for two years, and then um, <laughs> and then she went straight into the, in the business. I had a phone number for a director for a um, a summer kids summer show, Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And they said, Sorry, we've got the crew from last year, we don't need any more. Try ICB. So they she said, No, sorry, we're full. Hang on. B Sky B are doing one as well. And they're doing Saturday and Sunday and they're new. And she got in with them. And yeah. at eighteen, nearly nineteen, she was she was actually in television and, and started. And when Chris Evans first saw her, he said she's gonna be the next star, you know um yeah. and uh and so it was lovely it was lovely and it, it, she's a different performer to me so so it, it was it was lovely to see very lucky
0: but that's what's nice is this, isn't it it's an adaptation of broadcasting and what she's done and it just must be so lovely for you to see her flourish in what she does um so before I go on to talking about your sliding doors moments I wanted to ask you what are your beliefs when it comes to the sliding doors theory so the idea of luck fate, timing, coincidence. What are your personal
4: beliefs? It's, it's, right. I worked with Bud Flanagan and Bud Flanagan was an old comedian who sang, Who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Ah, Hitler? If you think old England's done. He didn't write it, but he recorded that only six months before he died. And I did the last television with Bud Flanagan. And he said Mm. to me, he said, Are you nervous? It was my first, Big television. I was comparing an hour and a half show, Christmas Night Spectacular for ITV in 1967. And he said, are you nervous? I said, a bit. And he said, this business is 10% talent, 90% luck. I said, oh, right. So then he got up and they asked him to rehearse. And within three, four minutes, he had 40 people crying. And that's what you do with 10% talent. He was just he was just all talent, really. But it's so simple, so simple. No skills, just the ability to be a a wonderful human being. And and to try and do that and try and be yourself was lovely. So as a comic, I was myself. And now Mm -hmm. in children's television, I'm still being myself, now talking about maths and science. So that it was a lovely way to have come. And I was so thrilled with that that I could do that. And I wasn't. Being knocked into shape like an actor who has to become this kind of character or this kind of character uh, from time yeah. to time. I, I, I was always me, and it was so, it was I just had a charmed life. That's what I've had.
0: Yeah, it's lovely to hear. And so, do you believe then that kind of the luck comes your way and then you kind of mix it with your talent?
4: But yeah, and then you get hit in the nose, you, you know, it, it, <laughs> it, it, then it hits you in the nose.
0: So your first sliding doors moment, which you said you were interviewed um, by the son of a major aircraft corporation. That's right. Who spurred you on. So we've already gone through the fact that you say your education didn't go the way you wanted it to. Um, So explain what happened then a bit more in this interview and why he spurred you on and why this was such a kind of moment in your life.
4: I got a job with the Hamilton Aircraft Corporation. The I was lucky on the day I had the interview because the son of the family had just come down from Cambridge and they said, Go and interview the kids. So he interviewed me, and I did a test, a mass test, and an English test, and got 100% in both. And he said, Why only two O levels? Are great? You know, so he talked to me, he said, You've got to aim high. Uh, so, go and get three more O levels. We'll give you a job straight away. Um, and when you get three more O levels, you can go on the business course and you become a, an industrial accountant. So, I got the three O levels on my own in that autumn. But when I'd been in the job about three months, I thought, an industrial accountant for the rest of my life? No, no. I don't so, know if I can so do that. and the forces came along. So, I joined the forces for three years because all the lads, who impressed me had come out of national mm. service, and there were two kinds one lot who said, Total waste of two years of my life, and the others who said, John, get in there, volunteer for everything, mm. and have a ball. So I followed them, and I did have a ball. I did three years in the RAF, do, do wonderful things, went one 24 hour period in the whole three years without a drink. Only one Because we were trapped in an exercise underground And because we couldn't get any drink I went to the officer of the watch I said can I have the key to the sick porters Because Don Crockett and I Aren't going to get a drink in 24 hours And that's never happened before So he said What do I do? He said there's no brandy in there I said no sir, surgical spirit And he said what? I said with Ah. a lot of orange juice A lot of orange juice And we couldn't find any so I went twenty-four oh, no. hours without a drink, and that's very sad. This fella interviewing me said, You've got if this is fine and you and you've talked to me intelligently and everything, I'm giving you a job straight away, no question. But you've got to go out and get three more role levels because you've got to get five to get on the business course to become a professional uh customers yeah. accountant. And he was there and he just came down from Cambridge and he could see that I could do it, you see. So that was wonderful. It was wonderful to to have met him.
0: Yeah. And at that age, was that like a real, because I guess when someone can see potential in you, it really, did that shift your mindset then to be like, actually, I can do this?
4: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yes. But I didn't doubt that I could do it. And and when I started the job, I didn't doubt that I could do it. So within the couple of Weeks that all these a, a big office and a huge office and all along the walls were racks of punch cards that they used to have. They recorded everything today. Today it's all on computers. They were cards and punch cards and big filing rooms with uh, folding files full of, of of great sheets of information. But they were going to electronics, and they were still they were still talking about what they'd done for for the Second World War. So the girls are doing the filing and I, when I joined them, we realized there was no room for the new stuff because we couldn't get rid of the old stuff. So I went to the boss and said, I'm sorry, your filing system is a mess. It's got to be sorted. And he said, well, I don't know who can do it. I said, well, I'll do it. So within a m- two months, I was this for this company. It's this company, about 2,500 workers in this factory. Wow. And I'm reorganizing the filing system. Within about three weeks with the girls and we all sorted out. Um, so yeah. I had tremendous energy and my dad's belief. But my dad was only an iron founder, you know, but he mm. had belief in things. So, so yeah, and then I was away. And when I went in the forces, oh, I just loved it. Now, I loved the camaraderie and I loved every aspect of it. Um, but I loved doing the job well. And that was yeah. the important thing.
0: And that's what that job taught you.
4: Yeah. To identify every aircraft on a radar screen and know exactly what it was, where it was going from, where it was going to, who it, if it was military, who it belonged to, what speed it would do, what it was going to do today, you know, all those things I knew when we were in Germany. And three of my friends, because we did this job, we, we went into air traffic control, and my mate was finished up at the tower at Heathrow. I could have gone that really? way as well, you know.
0: Yeah, you could. That what if moment.
4: It was just it was just wonderful that everything I took on, I felt I could do with two O levels. Yeah. You know?
0: <laughs> but also, so this is why this is such a life-changing moment for you, because I guess, you know, if you hadn't have been interviewed by that guy on that day, he was really kind of someone that you know, he wasn't the person that made you. You know do the a-levels because you were clever enough but he really planted that seed in your head and kind of started that time for you and what would have happened do you think if you hadn't have been interviewed by him if he hadn't have given you that job where would you have gone
4: well well i'd done two months searching for jobs with nobody of any inspiration or any care who even offered me a job had done two months of that virtually every day going to companies and being rejected so that he was he was wonderful and he just come, it's because he'd just come down from Cambridge, you know, he 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 so he just finished his education. Now he was the son of the governor of this the D'Avalin Aircraft Corporation. It's a big firm. And but he he had such a wonderful uh out outlooking uh view of the world and he loved it. And he saw my energy and latched onto that, and it was lovely. You know, two other people he gave jobs to at that time. They they went on to be very well, and he did the same for three of us. Um, so so that was the start. Then the forces that was my that was my university because I did everything yeah. university students did. I did everything. I would tore down signs and put them up elsewhere. I did all then silly things. Got drunk out my mind, you know, absolutely out my skull. Quite a lot of time, with but at the same time did the work, which is what you've got to do at university. You've got to do the work, yeah. and, and so I did that for three years with the RA. and they paid me to do it. So I always had beer money. Yeah, and that was that was wonderful.
0: The point you made there is so interesting because. People have the power to change other people's lives. Taking a chance on somebody, seeing potential really, really does. And, you know, if that guy hadn't have seen that in you and spurred you on, you know, you wouldn't have gone to work there. Maybe you wouldn't have even gone into the armed forces and gone to work for the RAF. What do you think do you think you would be doing if you hadn't have got that job? Do you think you would have gone into the RAF?
4: I think your energy takes you forward. If you've got energy and drive, it takes you forward, you know. Every time I've changed direction, because I, I was a drummer. You know, I, I became a drummer. I was a drummer in the RAF to start with, and I was a, I was a drummer at Bucklins. So I played the drums as well as doing the other thing, um, and uh, so I could have made it as a drummer. And, and when I bought the drums at sixteen, I said, "I'm going to in five years' time, I'll be a pro drummer." You see, and I went another way. I think if you've got it in you, the drive, and most kids have drive and if you've got that drive then you've got to go for it and you've got to be allowed to go for it and um, and you've got to be you've also got to be confident that the world is ready for you and is waiting for you and the doors will open for you because that happens with every generation so don't feel mm-hmm. there's no chance for you there will be a yeah. chance because they will all open the door
0: So on to your second sliding doors moment, which you said in 1967, the Val Doonican TV show, everything went wrong to 90 million viewers. So this sounds like a great moment because it sounds like it kind of really changed your life, but also 90 million viewers, even today is a lot of people. So do you want to just go a bit more into exactly kind of what happened then? So you said before that, you know, you were working somewhere else. You didn't, you didn't really know if you could go on the show, but kind of this opportunity came up.
4: I, I, I got loggerheads with my agent. I had a very good agent. When I turned pro in 64, I had, I think, nine nights off in the year.
0: Wow. I did
4: over 100 miles a day in my minivan in that first <laughs> year as a comedian. Because he was very, very good at booking. And he had a good stable with me and, and, and a few others. There were four of us who were tip for the top. They got into theatre working with uh, the, the the bachelors. Um, theater, and they got into theatre, and they prefer theatre to to cabaret and clubs. I preferred the clubs because I like working 30, 40-minute spots. And in theatre, mm-hmm. you get 12 minutes top whack, and I couldn't stand it. So I didn't take to the theatre, and I was happier in the clubs. I went to see the producer of the Val show, Chalted him, did, did a couple of simpler jokes, and he said, "I'll fit you in." A week later, I got a call on a on a Monday. You're on the Val Dunican show on Saturday. I said, "What What, what do you mean? I'm on the Dunican show? I've, I've got a barring clause with ITB, so I can't even do it." He said, "I've got you out of the barring clause, mate," and said, "I said no." I said, "This Saturday." I said, "But what about rehearsals?" And my agent said, "I've got you out of rehearsals because you don't need them, right?" and you're working at a a pub in in Manchester. I said, we'll go down on Saturday. It was live on Saturday to 19 million viewers. When I got there, it was an hour and a half, it was now half past five when the producer first saw me and opened the script I'd sent, read it, and said, this isn't the stuff you did when we met, and I'm not sure I like it. And we're an hour and a half away from this live show so oh, we went down for a rehearsal, and halfway through the rehearsal, they cut the time because they had to split for something else, and I didn't do a full rehearsal even once of the spot I was going to do. And then an hour and a half later to 90 million viewers, I went out to do this spot. Did the first gag, got a small laugh. Second gag, got a laugh, and the camera broke down. 90 million oh, no. viewers live, and the camera broke down because I'd done television, during television. I understood the camera broken down because of the way he behaved spun to another camera. The other camera looked at me. And I said, That's fine. I like this camera better because now I can see the audience. This is all live, you know, and your brains. Are, yeah, so I moved towards this other camera because I like the angle better and i stepped out of my light i was in a pool of light and now i'm working in the dark to a cameraman and a director who've never <laughs> seen the act live to 90 million viewers towards the end i do a joke about a boy a little boy and i go down to become the child and the camera doesn't move and eventually the camera goes oh i think i should move so it moved down and <laughs> as it moved down i popped up for the end and that was the end And it was the biggest disaster you can ever imagine. And that really put paid to my thoughts of being a comedian on television. In the end, it was the best thing that could have happened.
0: So, you explained kind of what happened on the Val Dunican show with the camera going wrong and everything went wrong that day for you. Um, But you kind of managed to turn it around with the camera not working and kind of make it comical. How did that show change? How did that show change things for you and change your life? Like, was it kind of a pinpoint moment where? you know, after you'd been on that show, things seemed to be slightly different for you.
4: It changed my life. The, the agent said, I don't know as much I can do at the moment. So for a year, I couldn't do anything. I'm still doing the clubs. The clubs still, still use me. And it was it was fine. Um, and I did lots of things in the clubs. But, but I wasn't offered anything more in television. But I started doing play school. And I yeah. found the thing about play school. For five. So the reason I took the play school job, because I thought it was for Crackerjack. You know, I got an interview, and I thought, for children's television, it must be Crackerjack if they're talking to a comedian. So I knew I'd got the job when I got the interview. In two minutes, he said, oh, you're going to be wonderful in play school. And I said, what's play school? And he told me, and he persuaded me to do the audition, to do it. And I did the audition, and I was the only person who got the job. But I was the only person who didn't need or want the job. And that Mm. often happens in the business. And uh, once I'd done three weeks of it, I saw the integrity of the people who wrote those children's programs. They really had all the integrity of the world. And it was for under fives. I, after th- doing it three weeks, I was no longer embarrassed. So I'd be in the clubs and people would say, still doing that play school, John? And say, yeah, still watching it, are you? Yeah.
0: yeah, exactly. And if they,
4: if they heckled me, I'd say, oh, Eddie, another word from you and you're going through the square window. Okay. Yeah. And i get away with that kind of thing. So it was all right. And then I, I loved it and I loved the integrity of the people. So I stayed with play school for 17 years.
0: It really shows that like everything leads on from another and like one experience you have is what makes the next experience happen and the next thing and kind of just shows that everything happens for a reason. I want to just touch on your third sliding doors moment. so. You said, in 1974, my neighbor said, you shouldn't be doing comedy, you should be doing factual information for shows on TV. Um, So you've said that this was kind of a really big turning point for you. Um, And I just kind of wanted to go into it a bit more in the sense of, do you think if you'd not have had that conversation with them, or kind of had that, that kind of spark put in your brain that you would have gone into it? I
4: had a neighbor. We moved to, to London. My first marriage was uh, not good from the very start. And the only solace was Zoe, you know, dear mm-hmm. Zoe, my wonderful daughter. But I've been there a couple of years. And we had great neighbours all about the same age, all late 20s, 30s, trying to get on in their first houses. How kids buy houses today like we do, I don't know. It's, it's almost impossible. Yeah. But it was okay for us, you see. So we bought £8,000 for, for a for a three-story townhouse um, and one of my friends he was a secretary of the research and development society that met every month at the Royal Society and he asked me to talk to them and I talked about comedy at their mm-hmm. ladies night and then he said you must join this society I said why he said you're, you're perfect for it and and I went to a couple of meetings he said definitely you must join so I joined and I got the the form, and it said, "Welcome, you. You are. You have joined an illustrious society, essentially for the captains of industry." I was a stand-up comic. I was doing under-five television, and suddenly I'm joining this elite group. And every time I went to meetings, I seemed to come up with a, a question, as they say, as the Americans say, out of left field. On the whole me- meeting. We go, <laughs> and go off in a different direction. They were always talking about finance and what is possible financially. And I was talking about what's possible scientifically and and change the whole thing. So here I am, and this neighbor of mine, Basil, Basil Peters, he said, you shouldn't be doing comedy. You're funny, but you, sh- you should be doing science on television, maths and science. And so I I said, I want to do a new, a new series. And they said, oh, what? I said, oh, maths. And my producer said, and they gave yeah. me uh, the first show and I did think of a number and it took three months to write the first one it took a lot of time to think what I was doing with with Albert Barber my, my director producer and we got it and I did a rehearsal and I got a standing ovation for the rehearsal uh, which mm-hmm. was very odd There was about two dozen people and they, they were just an and we knew we had a new kind of programming and it was it was very fresh so think of a number soon was getting enormous figures and it won awards uh, and then think again and we won world awards and everything and it was just a lovely lovely time the only amazing terrible thing about it it was i started getting letters by the by the hundred saying i'm going to be a scientist because of you and i went the responsibility so (laughs) i couldn't actually i couldn't actually read these letters anymore because i couldn't write the next script the pressure was so great (laughs) so they had to they only showed me a few and they showed me a few at the end of each series they'd have a box of letters and i'd sit with my mum and dad and we'd go through the letters and it was all right then but when i was writing i couldn't read these these letters and but we were breaking new ground all the time we were doing new things um things that nobody else had done, you know. And I'd watched Tomorrow's World and other shows like that. So I'd learned from them. But it, it did it in a, a, a different way altogether. And uh, it was mm-hmm. a tremendous period for me. My neighbor spotted my aptitude for math and science and asked me, actually, his two sons, I think they were 11 and 13 then, and he said, they're losing their love of math. They, they haven't got it. So I had... Bought maths books when I came out of the RAF to follow maths, and I'd bought maths books, but humorous maths books, maths books with with thought and with excitement, not textbooks. There's a guy called Martin Gardner who wrote in Scientific American, and he was the most prolific Mm -hmm. writer in maths and science in the world, and inspired many, many thousands. Inspired me, so I showed the two boys some of his maths. One of them went to Cambridge and became Wrangler, which is a top mathematician. And the other one wow. went to Oxford and do very well. So I did that for them in about three one hour sessions. And he said, no, you shouldn't be doing comedy, you should do in maths and science. That's that's what their dad said. So that was the the other big sliding door moment. And that really changed everything.
0: Yeah, and I love how you remember like the standing ovation and those small things, not small things, but those really early moments that obviously made an impact on you.
4: And, and the other great thing was the museum started noticing what I was doing, you know. Um, so if we wanted an exhibit for our programme, they would rip it out of um, wherever it was. It was being on main show. They would rip it out of main show, put it in a lorry and get it to Bristol where we recorded Totally free of charge. They all did it. Totally free of charge to help us. So we had amazing props. We had a Lamborghini when we did a program about doors because I wanted to do the gold wing doors. A Lamborghini's gold wing doors go like that. See? And uh, on the day, the scene crew said, "Oh, Johnny, we've got a problem. The Lamborghini's hooded wheels are so wide that we can't get it through the scene dock doors." Now, in a television studio. Uh, <clears throat> It has to be sealed for sound and everything, so you've got big steel doors with rubber seals, and you close them. And um, so you've got it's it's about a third of an inch steel, right?
0: Yeah.
4: About that wide around the door, and the door fits into that. And they couldn't get it in, so they said, "Can you film this after the next meal break?" I said, "Yeah." And during the meal break, they got oxyacetylene cutters, and they cut out of the steel door two notches that will be there forever just to get our lamborghini in and that's the thing the television crews did for us because they were seeing if we were breaking new ground so i had the first lasers on british television when they were banned by the unions i had the first um um ultraviolet camera when they were banned by (laughs) i produced um expanded polystyrene and nobody knew what we were doing. We got away with that with an audience of 80 and me mixing the polystyrene. And then say, I'll leave that t- and, and go over here. And I went, did something over there. And then said, look at the loaf, look at the loaf. And the polystyrene is expanding just like a loaf, in a, a, a loaf tip, just like a look at the loaf. And I came back. Why had I gone over there? Because as it expands, it gives us cyanide gas. But only a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and there was no <laughs> danger to the audience, but we couldn't tell health and safety that and we, oh so gosh. we did we did amazing things and and got away with them by not telling people what we were doing um and uh, we were very lucky but there was a little bit of sign I guess but it said no yeah. it'll be absorbed straight away What brilliant memories I've been around eight decades and if I've looked at my my life ten year in ten year lumps. There's no question. Every 10 years, there are so many things better than it were 10 years before. And it always continues. And that's what you've got to tell kids. And that's what television should be expressing, not the doom and gloom of everything unraveling and getting worse and worse every single day, because it isn't the case. It really isn't the case that things are getting worse and worse. We are getting better at everything. We are, you know... I mean, plastics and and plastics in the ocean, it's a terrible problem. And I don't know when we'll get to the bottom of solving that, but we will, you know. And and whatever the climate does, we will adapt to it. That's the other Mm -hmm. thing. But the question of how much of it is man-made and how much of it isn't man-made is debatable. And you have to remember, if you're worrying everybody in Great Britain about climate change, we're 1% of the world's population. So That's you might wild. say, ah, but because we're industrial, we're 2% of the industry. And that might be the case. But it's still only one fiftieth of the world's impact. And we're a very small country. So yeah. whatever changes we make in the whole scheme of things may not be that much. Must be, we must achieve this. We must be better. But to to hit us over the head with it every single day on the news, it just drives me mad. It's sad. You've got to be positive about the future and not negative about the present.
0: Yes, that is a very good way to put it. Johnny, I've absolutely loved chatting to you today. I've learned so much and I cannot wait for your autobiography to come out so I can learn even more about your life. And just thank you for sharing all your moments with us and just all of your brilliant stories. I've loved chatting to you.
4: It's been it's been lovely. I've I, loved to do it. You know, I'm always here, and because uh, I'm still working, and I'll work as long as I'm fit. And I'm I'm really quite fit. I'm trust how fit I am at eighty-five, um, and I yes. definitely want to keep on working.
0: Oh, well, keep going. Thank you, Johnny. Great pleasure. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sliding Doors. If you've enjoyed our chat and found it inspiring, I would love it if you could rate, review, share, and subscribe. Thank you so much.
3: Planning for your next trip?
0: Elevate your travel
3: style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands.